0: Hello and welcome! You feeling that energy? That, folks, is the energy of a man who is trying to talk over his own field game jazz intro and also pretend like he isn't extremely tired. Should we let the, uh, the jazz artist simmer down a little bit? Hi. Welcome to Tep of the Iceberg. I am sure you are a little lost. ...and think you might have just wandered through a time machine and into a 1920s jazz lounge of some kind... ...but you have not. You are in the right place. You're in uh, podcast land with me. My name is Key Vaughn McGlinchey. That is Key Vaughn, And if you forget it, you can always ask again, because that's what I always say. Because I have such a strange name. Not just in the southwest of England, where I am currently based, but everywhere I've ever been in my life. There is no one I've ever met with such an odd name... So good luck with that, both to you and all the different people that I work with. So what is this? What am I doing here? Well, I am here to introduce Tep of the Iceberg, which is an all-new and exciting podcast, which was originally designed to fill a gap which I thought existed, but when I spoke to one of my peers, she explained to me that someone else is already doing this. So if you listen to that other podcast... Um, also done by a trainee educational psychologist, and you heard it and you thought to yourself, hmm, I wish I could have the same thing, but inferior and with more bad jokes and less serious analysis, then you have found the correct podcast. Now, I guess the next question is, why am I qualified to do this? Why did I decide that I'd be the person that you should be listening to? Well, I'll tell you why. I saw Michelle Obama's, recent podcast getting a lot of traction and I know for a fact that I've been a massive inspiration to Michelle and her husband Barack in many different ways and therefore I thought well if they're already you know doing well with their work and uh, if Michelle's doing well with her podcast then I think I owe it to myself to get out there and uh, and really show people how it's done uh, and change the world for the better which is what I'm all about obviously. So the next thing is as a trainee who is tired do I have the time to do a podcast? And the answer is not really. However, we do have to write a lot of reflections as trainees. And one of the things that my university, the University of Exeter, allows us to do is actually record our reflections rather than just write them down. So I've been experimenting a little bit with this. And when I say a little bit, I mean a very small amount with this. And I thought to myself, well, what I could do is, I could do it in a podcast format and maybe use reflections as the structure for what I want to talk about. Um, And because it's two birds, one stone, maybe, maybe I can justify the extra time that it takes to record this and edit it. Yes, believe it or not, this has actually been edited. Uh, So imagine the stuff that was cut. (laughs) That's another thing you're going to find is that you're going to be listening to a man making himself laugh. So if you don't like that, this might be your opportunity to get off the iceberg and uh, maybe get on the big door with your woman from Titanic and uh, and get out of here. Now, what are we going to talk about? Because I've already explained what the structure looks like and my reason for doing this. You'll recall it involved with in Michelle Obama. The reason for doing this is because... On placement in Plymouth, which is where I'm based, one of my year two colleagues, um, who clearly didn't have enough work to do, decided that we should have a webinar I put that together during COVID and these unprecedented times and so on and so forth. That was intentional. Yes, so that we should put together this webinar and what we would do is that we would take all the frequently asked questions that people who would like to become trainee educational psychologists and eventually educational psychologists. I'm assuming that they don't want to only be trainees and leave. We would get all their questions, answer them as best we could, and hopefully they'd feel supported um, in the future in terms of applying and so on. Because as I'm sure, if you've managed to find me, I'm sure you're well aware how difficult it is to get onto the course. And it must seem sometimes like there's some kind of trick or spell or password or code of some kind that people who get onto the course know and people who don't, don't. And that is partially true. There probably are some really useful pieces of advice that we can offer in terms of helping you get onto the course, but ultimately your journey and your application, I think, needs to be the best possible reflection of who you really are. And if you can do that authentically, and they still don't let you on, well, then maybe there's something at the core of your being that means that you're not good enough and you should, uh, you know, do something else and give up. No, I'm kidding. What you'll need then is to get more experience, find out the kinds of things that maybe are missing and and try again. But I thought it might be a good idea to, in this first episode, to answer some of the questions that did come up when I went on Facebook and asked for some of the frequently asked questions and things that people want to know before joining because I found myself while I was on there I was on the hang on I'll just check what the name of it is I was on the educational psychology doctoral applicants Facebook group and I thought it might be worthwhile just answering the questions because I find that I wanted to anyway and I was kind of enjoying it and it made a little bit of a change from my day to day so I guess another question that you might have for me, which isn't listed obviously, is why do I have this time to sit and do this? Well, in year three, the expectation is that you would spend three days on placement and then the other two days of the week on your thesis, working on your thesis. And my thesis is on procrastination. And I thought, what better way to study procrastination than to live procrastination by doing this absolutely reckless unnecessary additional thing. So that gives you an idea of the uh, thought process going on with me. So before we get to the questions, what I wanted to do was maybe introduce the structure of reflection, the structured model of reflection or whatever, that I've been using since year one. And then we could maybe use that to try and work through each of the questions. And then once again, we're kind of doing two things at once. We're answering a question, but also introducing a format that hopefully is helpful. So it's a model of structured reflection, and John Driscoll, I think, put it together. Now the date that I have attached to his name here is two thousand and seven, but I suspect it might be older than that. But I'm sure someone who knows things can get in touch with me if they can be bothered, and set me straight. Um, I think part of being an EP is leaving your ego at the door and being willing to be to learn every day and if necessary, corrected. Uh, that, t- <laughs> that took me a long time to learn. I'm maybe I'm still only paying lip service to it. So let's look at Driscoll's model. Um, what you do is you think of an event that is worthy of reflecting upon. And what you do is you write a description of that event, and that's called the what stage. So I think that the idea would be not to have a lot of detail there and certainly not a huge amount of analysis and interpretation. I think what you want to do is be as objective as you can and just outline what happened. I think another important reason for doing that is that you want to save your best stuff for slightly later in it in the reflection because um, that's ideal. I'm gonna have to stop for a second here because my cat is crying and I think there's someone at the door but I shall return in just a moment. Okay. Hopefully that was seamless for you. But in the meantime, I have let my cat, Oscar, outside to wander around and eat grass. Um, he doesn't eat it as much as he just chews it, but. And the other thing that happened was uh, there was a guy delivering dumbbells, as it happens. I'm gonna try and do a bit more exercise uh, from the house. And I wanted some weights. And what better way to feel like you're exercising than to order something online? I feel like a lot of us do that rather than read a book we get that same hit of satisfaction and as you know, that same hit of feeling like we're a good person <laughs> by uh, just ordering the books online onto your Kindle or whatever. And then they come out and you go, Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that title and uh, I'm just going to slot that to the side and do something else. What's on Netflix? Anywho, what Driscoll wants you to do is he wants you to describe the event that you think is worth reflecting upon. And that's the first part of the cycle the next idea is that you purposefully reflect so that it involves purposefully reflecting on selected aspects of that experience occurring in practice so are there specific things that you have now described that maybe acted as little triggers for you I don't mean in a negative sense I mean well it might be but I I just mean something that initiates some additional thought for you and if so Maybe just mentally note those down, because those are probably the things that are most interesting to you, and might be most interesting to the person reading the reflection. And that's followed by the so what phase, and that basically is an analysis of the event. And yes, that's going to be pretty personal to you, and I think it's going to start to reveal some of the subjective aspects of what's going on for you and then if you can I guess this is the reason why it's called reflection is that if you can then try and step outside yourself and think why are those the ways I uh, that I personally as a person interpret what's happened what is it about me that I'm bringing I think uh, that sort of reflexive idea is really helpful because I find when I make space and time to do that it actually becomes less personal and it actually becomes an opportunity to be just more mindful of all of the different factors even about yourself that you can control and that gives you that space to maybe come up with a plan of action for what to do next um, which is actually the, the next phase. So we need to discover what learning arises from the process of reflection. Uh, so as you engage in this process of reflecting Hopefully, you'll be noting different little things that you've started to learn as you've sort of, I don't know, shine a spotlight. The longer you examine what you shine that spotlight on, hopefully, the more you're going to learn about it. I think it is sort of akin to lifting something literally in your hands and looking at it from, from every angle and seeing, is there more to it than you realized? And once you have that under your belt, that's you know, you're gonna to have to draw a line at some point, otherwise you just reflect off until the end of time and just wither away. So you write, okay, well wh- why why am I reflecting? What am I gonna do next with these new revelations or ideas that I have? And that's that that's the now what phase where proposed actions following the event are put together. Um and I always find that quite helpful because I I like to finish every meeting I have like that as well. I I need action points to feel like... It's almost like punctuation. Like I I need to feel as though all this time we've spent listening and talking and figuring things out needs to have a next step. Otherwise, I'm just more sceptical of the value of it. If we have two or three action points that become, the phrase I often use is homework. I'll say to the people I'm working with, okay, so I've got a couple of pieces of homework here. I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do that. And then they know that that they've been heard and that we've got a strategy. And once I've then highlighted where I wanna take it, I think it's probably fair at the end to then say, and didn't we discuss you doing this or you doing that or whatever, and maybe make it clear what the expectations are for other people in a kind of collaborative teamwork style. Rather than, <laughs> rather than actually giving people homework, you, I think what you want to be thinking is like, um, and hopefully you can do that for us by this time, and that will um, that will really benefit us or, or whatever. So I feel like this has kind of morphed slightly into what happens during like a consultation or a meeting, but I guess that's what I've seen spent a lot of my time doing while under the COVID restrictions and so on and so forth, um, is having lots of conversations over the phone and through Teams, etc., uh, other multimedia hosting services are probably available. Zoom fans. Um, I heard a rumor that someone hacked in to Zoom and like posted a load of stuff, but it's, that really had the ring of an urban legend to me. So if someone at some point could get in touch and let me know whether or not that actually happened and people were just uploading all sorts of shenanigans, all sorts of adult images <laughs> into meetings... Let me know because um, obviously I don't want that to be true because I don't want people to have been scandalized and so on. But there's a small part of me that wants it to be true because I just like salacious stories. Right, let's finish Driscoll's cycle for goodness sake. Now we've decided what the actions are going to be following the event. We need to action that new learning from the experience. So uh, as I think we've kind of covered this already, but... Um, (laughs) I can't really see the point in coming up with a list of specific actions that you're supposed to carry out and then deciding just not to do them. Um, If I have to explain to you why that's a bad idea, you might already be in a spot of bother. Um, Obviously, if you've come up with things that you should do, do try and do them. Yeah, so that's that's Driscoll's model. So maybe it's about time we had a little glance at one of the questions that was asked. Someone by the name of Elizabeth has simply put down it's not even a question, Elizabeth, so you're off to a bad start. She's just written preparation for interview tips. So I mean, I guess I could describe first of all how I prepared for mine. So the things that I did that were probably useful was that I had a very specific university and a very specific course in mind. So I know that you'd be tempted to play the odds and to apply for several different universities and assume that whatever experience you have is going to be enough to get you across the line and get you onto the course. And to be honest, you could well be right. If I'm going to be frank, I was by no means the top choice for the university I ended up at. In fact, I don't think I was in the top 10 people that they picked. I know I wasn't. So maybe I'm not the best person to answer this. Or maybe I am because I still managed to, to find a way past. So I think what really helped me there was that I had been doing a postgraduate qualification with the University of Exeter and I'd got to know several of the members of staff I don't mean got to know them personally, I mean read a bit about their bios and their research interests and so on from the website. And I was able to I actually read one of the one of the professors' books as well. And I was able to bring that in so that when there was this more informal phase just thinking I'm in this so what phase now here of this reflection. (laughs) So when I was in that more informal phase of discussing ideas and just letting the tutors get a sense of who I was, it's not that I was dropping names. It was that I could be very specific about what I did know and why, because I think it would take a fairly callous person not to be a little bit flattered or impressed that you'd made that amount of effort. Um... Another thing that was quite interesting was that when I was discussing this with a colleague, she had got a really good sense of precisely which questions are asked. And I think that's probably what everyone should do. But for me, what actually happened was that I went in pretty much unsure of any question that was going to be asked. And I took the approach of almost backing myself to think about the answers on the spot take a moment almost to pause and reflect and then try and answer the question as honestly as I possibly could and I think that worked for almost every question except one that I wasn't really able to answer at that point which was how has educational psychology practice changed over the past few years I wasn't particularly well equipped to answer that question and I kind of (laughs) I kind of fudged this answer about how it's always changing or you know whatever but my understanding since is that the way I was thoughtful about the other questions and tried to really answer them honestly and authentically in the moment did go well for me however I should once again add that it's important not to generalize this is a really good point a friend of mine made um on the course he said you don't want to generalize too much from your own experience like everybody is gonna benefit from that same piece of advice. So if you're the kind of person who wants to be meticulously prepared and try and find out as much about the questions you might be asked as possible, there are ways of doing that. You can contact people on Facebook, people who've been on the course before, they might be able to give you a sense of precisely which questions are asked. And maybe if there's if people are interested in that kind of thing and there's demand for it, we could almost get a little uh, database of questions and kind of go through them and talk about the kinds of answers that have that have maybe worked. If that's the kind of, if that's your wheelhouse. So that was a good piece of preparation. And then just the obvious Maslow stuff, you know, get some sleep, have something nice for breakfast, maybe do some gentle exercise or something. Maybe that's the night before. Put on your best stuff, feel good about yourself and go in there and be you. So maybe that does cover the now what as well, because each of the, answering each of these questions, I suppose, comes back around to offering some kind of advice as well, doesn't it? So that will probably do. I guess I should confess at this point that these, this model of structured reflection, as it were, you know, the, these are models that are useful and theoretical as guides, and I think you'll find that with executive frameworks and stuff as well, um, which you, you'll definitely want to read around uh, before you, um, before you apply or put them into your application. But we'll get onto that in a second. The point is. You want to thread the needle. You want to find that Goldilocks zone between knowing absolutely nothing about any of the frameworks or models and just trying to fly by the seat of your pants. I don't think that's going to work. Um, But if you're too slavish to each of these models and frameworks, then I also think that you run the risk of not being able to see the wood through the trees and you're not paying attention to the actual world that's happening around you. So I'm going to try and bring this back to this model, but a lot of the time through talking this through in a reasoned way, we're going to do the same thing. So Julia here asks the structure of the interview and how to sell your application. So I'll uh, theories to put etc. She's put in um, brackets there. So the structure of the interview is going to change from university to university. And I'll be frank, I don't remember a lot of detail about how it was done at Exeter. If I remember correctly, there was like a a good old-fashioned panel-style interview where you sat at the end of a table and there were, like, between six and ten people just asking you questions and you had the opportunity to to answer them as best as you could. But there were also some other cool things there. So they they had an, a chance for an informal chat um, and they, they also allowed you to uh, sort of debrief around other tasks and whether or not you thought they were fair and this and that and the other thing. Because before the debrief, there was a group exercise. So if I'm not mistaken, there were six of us sitting together. There were six of us sitting together and we were given a task to do. And that year it was to put together some advice around what rules should apply in a group situation. And I think three of us in that group of six actually got onto the course. So I, I don't think it's unfair to say that we did a good job of this. So what we did was we decided to act out as a little play examples of bad um, collaborative behavior. You know, speaking over the top of everyone, only being interested in your own stuff. Uh, I don't know what else would be bad collaborative behavior. Throwing weapons at other members of the group. Just whatever, okay. Examples of bad stuff. And then we sort of did like a stop, and then there was a little bit of input on why that wasn't a good strategy and what a good strategy might look like. Um, and that was co- that was pretty cool because it was attention grabbing, but also got the point around building from from the positive side of things. And as as you do your EP training, that idea of looking for strengths wherever you can find them and building on those and building on those in an attempt to almost kind of. Swamp a lot of the negativity and talk around negativity and needs that you'll encounter. You'll notice that that's a strategy, certainly at, at my university, that they push is to 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 find those, just any little fleck of gold, any precious moment, and big it up and make it bigger and make it shine. That might actually be a nice thing to look for when you're talking about how do you apply your own uh, experiences, is to talk about times when things were negative, things seemed hopeless, but you find those little chinks of light and those are what you decided to build upon. I think, uh, I wish I'd said that at mine. (laughs) I think that's exactly the kind of thing certainly Exeter would would like to hear more about. The next part of the question is is around theories to put, etc. So I was quite lucky here. The advice I'd give is start, thinking about psychological theories like yesterday like you you really need to if you're a teacher or you're coming from a background where you've got a specific set of skills and you do a really good job I think it might be tempting for you to think well that's enough so if I'm really really good at this thing and I'm better than everyone else I can see around me or whatever it is that you're thinking therefore that justifies my place but I think what a tutor would probably argue is that you need to change your perspective. You need to really zoom out and reflect on the world as a psychologist. You need to be thinking about psychology in almost everything that you do. Now, you'll probably have to take a break from it. You, you, know, you, don't want, you might find it boring going to the cinema and going, I wonder why they make us have tickets and then that person checks it. You know, is that t- to make people less or to be, make people more intimidated to try and sneak in. like, If you're that kind of person, then you can think that way. Um, otherwise, you probably want to take a break from it. But the goal is to use psychology to understand the situations that you're in. So this kind of leads in to another question I got from Sarah, which was, do you ever feel extremely frustrated when schools don't follow your advice? And <laughs> it, it's lovely there because... I think I might have just answered that in the past whereas now you find yourself looking for extra little clues. So Sarah's inclusion of the adverb extremely is quite interesting, isn't it? Because it sort of leads you. It's already quite emotional. And I think what I'd say is that the answer is yes. I think sometimes you do get pretty frustrated because if you weren't frustrated, you would um I'll get back to theories in a second. If you weren't frustrated, are you sure that you definitely care? You know, you you want to affect change and I think frustration reflects the fact that those changes that you would recommend and that you would argue for aren't happening. Uh, So I think frustration is understandable. The reason that we are so reflective and describe those occasions when we've been frustrated and then analyze specifically what was triggering for us or what made us frustrated and then come up with new steps is because being frustrated is not doing any work for you. You can. I, I remember this. It was at the very start of year two. I got frustrated. I spoke to Asenko in a way that... Now, we, we, we really get on now. But I spoke to him in a way that was inappropriate. It doesn't reflect the kind of person I want to be. Never mind the kind of psychologist I want to be. And I was almost. I was getting to the point. I was almost making like demands. And he actually took me aside. It was either later that day or another day. And he said, listen, we're getting on fine. But I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like the way I was spoken to there. And... That's just the way I feel, and I, I want you to know that. And we ironed it out, and everything's everything's absolutely fine now. But I, I got into the car that day, and I was just gutted. I was so upset. I was disappointed that I'd made someone feel that way. I was disappointed in myself because it's not the kind of person I want to be, and so on and so forth. My point being, I had to learn that however justified I felt in my frustration, however correct that felt, it doesn't matter because all that matters to me and maybe this is just a this again I'm only ever speaking for myself what matters to me is that kind of pragmatic approach whereby I want to know what we're going to do next and if I'm frustrated or angry or upset I think I'm in the way and things are not going to move if I'm in the way never mind other people being in the way so yes in answer to your question Sarah I would get frustrated when Schools don't follow my advice, especially if I feel like my advice is the right kind of advice, but I don't think acting on that frustration is going to be wise. I think what I need to do then is think, right, what psychology has taken place for the adults that aren't taking the advice? What barriers are in the way in terms of them taking that advice? And can I find a way through psychology, through gentle teamwork, collaboration, cajoling, can I find a way to to get them to trust and have confidence in my advice? Can I give them some small wins based on my advice so that they can build that trust? Is there something that has gone on in the past? Have they been let down, disappointed? Do they have a, an ideological opinion or an ideological view that's getting in the way? Whatever it is, I need to find out what it is because at the end of the day, at, the, at the, I'm getting passionate now, aren't I? At the end of the day, down the line, there are vulnerable children and families and even teachers and members of staff who, in my opinion need us. They need or they will benefit from the service we can provide. So that's my true north. That's what should be motivating me at all times. And if my own ego or frustration or whatever is getting in the way, then yes, I'm going to have to go off and breathe for a bit and so on. But ultimately, that has to change and I need to calm down and Be a professional and be a consultant who guides the situation forward in an appropriate way. Right, getting back to theories. So I just mentioned there, actually, um, this is your question again, Julia. I just mentioned there what motivates me and my true north and values and so on and so forth. So what you're going to want to do is start thinking as a psychologist from now. And by that, I mean... Are there theories of psychology that you're interested in or that you find better than interested in, that you find useful for understanding children, for understanding adults, for understanding the people in your life? Are there theories that you've identified that you find useful, because I'll tell you about mine in a second, but whatever you find useful, then you're going to want to show how you apply those psychological theories, whatever they are, to situations you're already in, in your job now. And show that you've actually been almost metamorphosing into a psychologist, like without even getting any of the training, like almost like you've got like an innate, inherent psychology ness that's in you, and it's sort of it's starting to ooze out through your pores and through your practice in the job that you're doing. You know what I mean? Do you? Because that's an odd thing to say. But what, what I'm saying is that you almost want to make the argument that you're already a psychologist or at least you're already nearly a psychologist and what you now need and will benefit from is that more formal training and those more formal experiences which will make you be the best psychologist you can be, the best applied psychologist you can be I should say, which funny enough is actually the uh, motto of the University of Exeter's doctoral educational course is be the best applied psychologist you can be or something like that that's essentially what it is so back to me again well what theories right well i before my training theories that i've been most influenced by are big like broad stroke theories which i can use for a lot like to understand a lot of what i see so one of them would be expectancy value theory that's eccles and colleagues expectancy value theory and I'll just I'll read a tiny tiny bit about that in just a second another is another theory of motivation which is um, self-determination theory I find that if I can understand the big things that drive people's behavior not the minuscule aspects of their behavior but the big things that motivate them and sometimes those could be sort of abstract ideas like autonomy but that's excellent because a lot of the time I'm coming up against situations where people, young people, aren't doing the things that a school or another um, provision expects them to do or wants them to do. And the the key there is the word expect in expectations. They don't even feel like they have to earn it. They just expect it, which is understandable because it's built on ideological conditioning, etc. That that's the way a lot of schools kind of see things. And you want to kind of flip it for them and go, okay, well, let's let's look at what you want, let's look at what we want, let's look at what they probably want. Like deep down, I don't mean they want another biscuit. I mean, like, what 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 do people want and value? Is it those relationships? Is it relatedness? Is it freedom and autonomy? Uh, is it competence? Is it a sense of pride in what you're doing and and that lovely feedback that you get? And oftentimes, I can use that then to explain something that otherwise seems inexplicable so this kid is always on the xbox and so on and so forth and i'm going right okay but look what it's like from in the xbox one it feels like that's what he wants to do so there's a, an element of autonomy there two there might be friends on there or whatever that he can speak to there's a sense of relatedness and even then like like i don't know how many gamers that are actually listening to this but if you spend time playing one of these modern games, one of these like big single player games with a sweeping narrative, you're involved in something epic, and there are people in it. I know they're fictional characters, but read a good book; it's the same. It's the same issue that you become come to care for, and that seems important to you. So there is an element of relatedness there. But I think with computer games in particular, because you're going to find fifty thousand kids all playing Fortnite all the time, and everybody's worried, is that they get that sense of um, that sense of competence. A a computer game is like a perfect competence-providing machine, literally a machine, whereby you do a thing and you get instantaneous feedback about what was good about it and what was bad about it, and then you get to correct for that and correct for that with the next life, with the next save point. So once you're on that competence-feedback treadmill, of course that's what you want to do. What you think, that's, that's why it's exciting. You think that maths homework has that same appeal? No, it doesn't. You've got to really drag it out of yourself to motivate yourself to do things like that. Um, for a lot of people anyway. I know there are some people who are in love with maths and so on and more power to them. But yeah, so th- those are those three ideas of relatedness and autonomy and competence are the main drivers in self-determination theory. So there, there's one way it works. Um, so sorry, so if you were in the interview... And you could say, okay, well, I was a teacher and I noticed that this child was suffering from a lack of motivation with this particular topic or idea. Then is it because they feel low and inequipped and not able to do it? Is it a competence thing? Do, do they need that competence raised in a sensitive way? Is it because they're constantly being made to do something they don't want to do? Is it about autonomy? Can we, can we just wedge a little bit of freedom into their day so that they feel like they're more in control? Um, Or is it relatedness? Do they feel alone? Do they not care about the teacher? Do they not get on with other people in the class? And like these kinds of questions, once you chase them down, will often start giving you information that you can then follow and follow as you come up with your psychological formulations, if you know what I mean. So yeah, SDT is one for me. Self-determination theory is a big one for me. And again, expectancy value theory. So the idea there is that um, the two main things that are driving a person are their expectancies for success and how much they value something? Now, it's a much more complex uh, setup than that. But <sighs> I'm not being funny. As a training educational psychologist, you're going to find yourself having to think pretty quickly in terms of psychological theories and how they might apply. So, the expectancy side of it is going to relate to their academic self-concept. It's going to relate to self-efficacy and all of these beliefs about the self, kinds of um, ideas and constructs. So. Yes, that's going to that's gonna play, play a big role in what's happening, I think, a lot of the time with young people is what is their view of themselves, and then there are all sorts of lovely ways that you'll learn about that you can actually elicit those views of themselves and others, which is great. And then the, the, the next thing is the subjective task value. So there's a particular task that, say, someone isn't particularly motivated to do. Um, well, does it have attainment value? Is it important for their identity or their sense of self? They're a surfer, so they surf because that's part of who they are. And they'll get up first thing in the morning not feeling very well and go and do that. But they're not academically gifted. I'm not the kind of person who does well in school. I'm not a maths person, you know, that kind of thing. They're they're already view, already their sense of themselves is that they don't value that particular task. Uh, another one and this is the classic and this is coming up a lot in my research at the moment is it's intrinsic value it's just how much you enjoy something so we can go back to computer games again this is fun it's bright and colorful and moves fast makes me feel good makes me feel excited it, it has intrinsic value uh a worksheet that's been badly photocopied and off to the left and i uh, can't make out that question and i can see that no effort's been put into this and nobody Really seems to give a crap about how I feel about it. That's going to drive that intrinsic value down, I'd imagine. And then lastly, we've got the utility value, uh, which is its usefulness or relevance. So, yeah, maybe you're not in love with Spanish, but you know what? You need to be able to get that A level to do the course that you've set your heart on or do the career that you want to do in the future. And therefore, you can use that utility value to almost kind of dig deep and to get over the low intrinsic value of the specific task because you got those big ideas and those big goals and that's what you're you're going toward. Um, And the last part of this sort of linked to values there's a bit of argument in the literature about whether or not this is uh, part of subjective task value or not but cost such as the loss of time or overly high effort demands, loss of valued alternatives Um, or negative psychological experiences such as stress. And that's going to come up a lot because you're going to come up, you're going to meet children and young people who have mental health needs and they're going to literally experience some pieces of work or some situations in school as an actual threat. They'll behave as such, you know. So that's another another useful one. So those are two of the big broad stroke psychological theories that I find useful and helped me understand my work as a science teacher before I applied and have come in very, very useful for me as a training educational psychologist after I've applied. Now, there's some other awesome big theories out there. I think you're going to want to find a way of understanding and appreciating attachment theory because it's just what it has to say about human beings relationships with each other especially when they're younger and their understanding even of what a relationship is and what the expectations around relationships are is going to be key. So I know that um, my supervisor in Plymouth loves Pat Crittenden's work, uh, the dynamic maturation model I think it's called. I'm genuinely not reading that so I'm really impressed. Uh, If you can get a nice sort of uh, a nice succinct version of that theory and get it through your head and then start looking for examples of it in your day uh, with young people you maybe work with or even with adults you you work with you might go I wonder do they are they very compliant all the time and I wonder do they self-soothe because of experiences they've had when they were younger and then you might in a very gentle sort of consent getting way just to be clear learn a little bit about what their background was and what their early experiences of relationships was and you might find that those Formulations and hypotheses that you put together are accurate. At which point, boom, you've got yourself, uh, you've got yourself a psychological theory that you're putting to use. What else? There was one I came across recently called uh, scarf theory. Now it's from like marketing and business psychology, but I don't really think any of that, any of those like distinctions matter a huge deal. Just read, just get out there, just just read and watch YouTube videos and learn and learn and learn. Be voracious about it what's useful, you know. But uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the scarf model now. I'm going to have to look it up just to remind myself what each of them stands for. Uh, the scarf model. Well, it's it's it, once again it's about social interactions, and the reason I came across it was because <laughs> I was curious about my own inability to ask for help this is again part of this reflection thing i was like right well here's a thing that happened and i could have asked for help and i didn't and i tried to do it on my own and i'm not 100 that went as well as it might have done what is it about me what is it about humans that make it difficult for some of us to ask for help and on my travels as i was trying to figure that out i came across this scarf model which is uh it's the neuro leadership group or something there are five sort of factors or elements to a social interaction Uh, these kind of ethereal abstract resources that people are either striving for or trying to get away from depending on what's happening so scarf is s-c-a-r-f and the s is status so if there's an event or a social interaction or whatever that makes you feel high status then you'll be drawn towards that and if there is a particular situation that you're in where you feel lower status then you're likely to draw away from it so you could I suppose you could apply that to the interview itself in that room you're likely to be interviewed pretty much certain to be interviewed by lots of people who are better qualified and more knowledgeable (laughs) about educational psychology than you I suppose you're more you're the expert in you, though, so you can bring that to the table. Anywho, that's a high-pressure situation, isn't it? Because you you feel low status in that environment. Now, there's lots of other reasons and lots of other explanations. Psychology is complicated. I'm just offering this as a kind of, as just a helpful health, health example. Let's go back to the interview panel. Certainty. Do we feel certain? I, I sort of think of competence here as well. Do we feel like we know what's going to happen? Because that's an appealing... As humans, I think that's an appealing emotional state, to feel certain. So much so, I think that a lot of us will strive to feel that way or pretend like we feel that way even when we actually don't or have no right to, but that that's <laughs> what leave politics at the door. Another one, autonomy again. So like with certainty or competence uh, and with autonomy, we're actually still getting back to self-determination theory again, aren't we? I wonder, is that why this appealed to me so much? So if you feel like you have a say and you have some control, then that's an attractive situation, and if you feel like you're being done to and things are happening to you, then that's not a very attractive situation. Uh, relatedness, boom, here we go again. So this is about whether or not you feel that connection with people, so you might put up with some of that low status and lack of autonomy if you feel like you're part of that team and you're serving the team in whatever way, like I've I, I played bass in a band, not the most high status position in the band, I can assure you, but... The sign that you made together meant that you were more more predisposed to serve and deal with things like a lack of autonomy or, or having control all the time, you know? So I think relatedness and doing things for one another is key. So that's SCAR, and now we need the F, which is fairness, and it's whether or not you perceive an exchange as fair. So that might also help explain why, and that, I mean with those kids reach that developmental stage I can't remember exactly what age it is uh, probably around seven or eight eight mark where just fairness and what isn't isn't fair and injustice (laughs) and uh, equity and so on just becomes they're so heightened around those kinds of things and you, you might find yourself trying to help adults around that child understand their view and their point of view around those kinds of things. And so, yeah, I don't know about you, but if there are situations that I feel are unfair, I find myself put off by them, you know? So, I mean, maybe we could just sort of finish this up with another look at Sarah's question. Do you ever feel extremely frustrated when schools don't follow your advice? Well, is them not following my advice about me being a trainee educational psychologist or even an educational psychologist and feeling like they're not taking my status into consideration? Is it a threat to certainty because I think I know and they're telling me I don't or they're, they're holding up a kind of alternative to me and that's unpleasant? Uh, is it an autonomy situation? Is it because I feel like I should have control on what I decide has to happen? And I find that off-putting and triggering, that someone's threatening that feeling. Is it relatedness? It sounds to me like if a school aren't listening to me and we're not in a good situation, then I haven't built up the kinds of relationships that I would like to build up with, with those other adults. Uh, I'm not saying that we have to be best friends, but we certainly want to feel a better connection so that we don't end up being dismissed. Because I think it's quite hard for people to dismiss people that they're friendly with or that they care about. And lastly, fair. Does it feel unfair? Does it feel unfair on you? Does it feel unfair on the, the child or the the family that you're advocating for? I don't know. Um, I guess you're going to have to, I think any of us would have to take that on a case-by-case basis and look at the details. But hopefully I've illustrated that these kinds of shortcuts um, can actually be really helpful and quite insightful for us. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I think I've droned on long enough, and I think that's probably a fair length for a podcast and for a reflection. So I'm hopeful that someone will stumble across this, and I'm hopeful that it'll be of some benefit. But for now, I had to go through all this copyright-free music to decide what like music I was going to play at the beginning. And I find this really, I thought, cool piece of music called um, something Robot Jazz, and <laughs> as soon as I heard it, I thought, you know what, that works for me, but it probably doesn't work for other people, so rather than um, start off with it and put loads of people off, I'll play it at the end as we play out, and if people hear it, they can just switch off if they haven't done already. So I guess the last thing I should say is, um, what is it, action points I should come up with? Action points I will... Take a look at this and see if there are bits that need to be edited out. I will come up with some further questions and ideas and record another one of these because I can do it at least as long as I have to write reflections. And I think that I think that's it. I think that's all the homework that I have to do. So if you have stuck with me, thank you so much for your time. And I hope that this has been useful in some way. And yeah, all the very best. Yeah, welcome to TEP of the iceberg. Bye. chance out on my garden on my garden together chance out on my garden together chance out on my shine, together chance out on out on